Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. There certainly are skills or I'll call them more personality traits that are a little more helpful, right? Let's say if you have from a sales perspective, right? So I, I think some of those innate behaviors could be things like being a little more extroverted, perhaps being a little more outgoing, a little more engaging, having a natural and genuine desire to want to learn about others right, and help others. I think the personality trait of empathy and having empathy towards others that is certainly something that you can be born with, but definitely can be developed over time based on life experience or based on just growing those traits. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Nick Kane. Nick's the managing partner of the Janik Performance Group. Now, we had a really fun conversation. We dig into three important topics. Now, first and foremost, we talk about Nick's passion for bourbons. In fact, Nick posted a list online of what he considers the very best bourbons to help you celebrate a big sales win. Uh, so then we go through that list. And then after that, we dive into the whole subject of what it takes, actually what is really required to develop a good salesperson. And we detour a little bit into why sales training keeps failing that individual seller and what can be done to change that. Then we dig into a couple topics that Nick has recently been writing about. First, how to engage the empowered B2B seller. And then we go deep into the four selling skills salespeople need in order to win with today's empowered buyer. So we get into this and much, much more. But before we get to Nick, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. Pleasure, pleasure. So, uh, where have you been hiding out during the pandemic? <laughs> uh, mostly in my home, um, moving from room to room to find a different experience, <laughs> week to week. <laughs> and your home is where? We're. Uh, I'm actually in, in just outside of Las Vegas, in Southern Nevada. Las Vegas, and mm -hmm. I mean Las Vegas. You and I talked about this a bit before we start recording. Is is um, a changed place as every place is, but I mean that one place in particular thing where people congregate in large numbers, and it's like, yeah, that has to be different. Yeah, very much. Yeah, it's a it's a totally different experience being in Las Vegas, at least in the tourist areas, right uh, on the Strip and, and right. that sort of thing. It's very, certainly very different than it was uh, pre pandemic. Your hey, kids actually going to school or do you have kids? Are they actually going to school or? I do. Yeah, I have three. Uh, the, the oldest is not in school currently. She just finished her undergrad. Uh, the second is in school in college, but all online. And then the third is actually going to school. Wow. Yeah. So of course they gave you a discount on the tuition because you're doing it online yeah, or not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I, so what What year in college is your daughter who's doing it online? She's a freshman. She's a freshman. So this is quite a different experience for her is and compared to other typical freshman year where everybody shows up. Um, I mean, does she <laughs> – what she feels – is sort of interest in what she's going through and what she feels about what she might be missing. Yeah. Yeah, she, she definitely is uh... – it's an interesting time for her. Uh, the experience is certainly not what you would expect as a freshman going into college. Uh, she's primarily home. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, you know, um, 
you know, and doing classes completely online. Um, so it, it's, you don't get the same get togethers, you don't get the same, um, you know, uh, social experience, that's for sure. Uh, and even just from an educational standpoint, very different than being in a, a large lecture or that sort of thing. You know, everything's obviously done on Zoom um, or some sort of platform like mm -hmm. that. So yeah, she, you know, on one hand, she doesn't necessarily know what she's missing, <laughs> you know, as a freshman. Um, but she certainly had enough exposure from her older sister to get an idea. And, um, you know, she, I, I know she wishes she was in school. Yeah. Like, like, like normal. And which, which school is she attending? Uh, here in, in, uh, in Las Vegas at UNLV. UNLV. Okay. Yeah. Are they playing football? They are. They actually are. Yep. That's crazy. Are they letting people in the stands? They are. Doubly yeah, crazy. Very, okay. Yeah. <laughs> very, very, uh, very limited capacity. The Raiders started here this year. Oh, they right. have no, they have no fans coming in, uh, but UNLV has decided to let some fans in to the new stadium. Oh, so UNLV is pay, playing in the Raiders stadium? They are. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they are. Well, I guess that's an upgrade over that small one. I always seem to remember passing it coming in from the airport. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's, yeah. yeah. That's, an, that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Small one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, question for you is what's the, I've been asking all my guests, is what's, what's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself personally during the pandemic? Yeah. You know, it, I, I think the biggest lesson I've learned <clears throat> is definitely finding ways to continue to stay motivated mm -hmm. um, and disciplined in a very uncertain and difficult time. Um, you know, it's, you, you learn a lot about yourself <laughs> when you are in your home for months at a time, uh, limited, you know, uh, social experience, um, when you're used to being in an office environment around people every day it really changes the atmosphere and it, it's, and it changes the mindset. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I think I've learned a lot just about myself and around self-discipline and time management and just, you know, just making sure that I am continuing to, to try to be as productive as you know, I believe I am <laughs> typically, mm -hmm. um, but in a totally different environment. So, you know, I find myself just kind of challenging myself every day, every week with, doing things a little bit differently, perhaps managing time a little bit differently, but always with the focus of staying as productive and, and engaged as possible. So how many people in your company? In total, um, between those that work here and, and uh, you know, outside of the office and abroad, around 50. 50, total. okay. And so how's business been for you? Business has been surprisingly good. <laughs> you know, when, when, when the pandemic started, uh, there was such uncertainty just economically, but especially in our business, you know, as a sales performance company um, that, you know, that offers training services mm -hmm. as a primary service, most of those services are delivered in person. Right. Um, you know, organizations are bringing people into a central place and we, you know, everybody's together in a room and it's, it's just a very different experience. So that shift to having to train virtually, which, which we've done for, for many years, but just not nearly to the degree that we are today. Um, created a lot of uncertainty into the market. In the market, are we? Do we want to do that? Are we going to do that? And then also, you had the economics of uncertainty at, at that time as well. Um, so, as an organization, we just we didn't know where things were going to go, and we're, quite frankly, we're planning for a down year. Mm -hmm. um, but it really hasn't been that. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's actually been a very successful year overall. There's been a high amount of demand for different types of curriculum, for different types of training and learning modalities. And I think organizations realize that uh, their sellers and, and sales leaders need additional skills, right, in this environment. And regardless, as long as you can deliver those effectively and do it, you know, in a way that is cost effective, there's still a strong demand for it. So overall, the year has been, has turned out to be far better than what we, you know, anticipated at the start of COVID. Yeah, I think that seems to have been the case for a lot of companies that are sort of in your space, or sales performance, sales training, and so on, is, is perhaps companies took it as an opportunity to say, well, let's, you know, let's, let's take this as an opportunity to invest, in our team that perhaps we felt we were too busy to do before or something because it's yeah been a fairly consistent story among people i said doing what you're doing the business has been very good this year yeah so it's it's not just us then not, no, not, no 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 it seems to have been across the board so um i think it's sort of maybe the nudge for companies to finally say look yeah we can do more of this virtually right it's hey it's great to bring nick in it's great to bring andy in and you know talk at our sales kickoff meeting and and so on but it's like yeah, 
yeah, we get the same benefit. Just and hopefully pay less by having somebody do it virtually. Yeah, definitely. All right, so let's talk about something really important first, which is an article that a blog article you had that that was the best bourbons to use to celebrate a win. <laughs> now, did you write that? Yes. Yeah, yes, I figured I you did. And so let's go through this because that's an important thing. We need to celebrate wins, and I'm a big bourbon fan. And there are a couple there I hadn't heard of before. Um, so your favorite was one called Larceny, mm-hmm. and I had not heard. That's the one I had not heard of. That that intrigued me. I was I was looking it up online after I read the article. <laughs> yeah, I really do enjoy that bourbon a lot. It is a it's a Kentucky bourbon. And it is, I, I tend to really like weeded bourbons. Mm. Um, so that is a, you know, a weeder, if you will, right, you know, right. in, bur- in bourbon talk, but that, that is a weeded bourbon. Um, and they have different, you know, d- degrees of that and different additions of it based on barrel proofing and that sort of thing. But that, that particular one has a, just a great taste. Um, it's, it's reasonably priced, uh, just a good weeded bourbon, you know, um, you know, the, one, so what's, one of the what's most the impact of, of. The wheat on the bourbon flavor, or the yeah, whatever. Yeah, I, I, the proof for me. I, yeah, I think for me, it just offers a more balanced taste to the bourbon. Um, it, it removes some of the heat for me at the beginning. You know, if it's a higher proof, right? Uh, but it has some wheat. It's just it's not as hot, if you will. Interesting. I'd like yeah. that because I don't like the hot bourbons. Mm-hmm. Um, so your next one is four rows of small batch, which. Yeah, a couple of years ago, a uh, friend did a favor for me, the sales in the sales space, and I said, "Yeah, thank you very much. What can I do to repay you?" It was four roses, so um, that was the first time I'd really sort of said, "Okay, well, I'll get one for myself and try it," and that's awfully good as well. Yeah, I really enjoy that one a lot as well. Uh, the, the small batch. And they have a small batch select as well. Again, just really good quality product. Um, another, you know, great uh, Kentucky-based bourbon. Yeah, and then, gosh, you got Eagle Rare from Buffalo Trace. Love that. Maker's Mark 46. I really like the Maker's Mark 46. I think that's, I don't know whether it's uh, aging in the French oak or whatever, but that's that one hits my spot pretty well. Um, you had Woodford Reserve. Not a, not a, I'm not, I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of Woodford Reserve. Um, Two... Too big of a bite for me. Mm-hmm. Michter's good. Wild turkey rare breed, good. Now then, so last, you give a shout out to a bourbon made in Las Vegas. So tell us about that one. Yeah. So yeah, that that one is called Smoke Wagon. Uh, there's a couple in, that that have become more popular. Uh, one in particular in Las Vegas, and then another one in northern Nevada uh, called Frey Ranch. But Smoke Wagon is getting a ton of buzz in the bourbon space. <laughs> there. Their stuff is selling out like crazy, hmm. and it's uh, they have a few different uh, levels to their bourbons. Starts off with the the straight bourbon. It's called. They do a small batch. They do an uncut, unfiltered, uh, and then they have one called uh, a, pr- a private barrel, and then they have one called Desert Jewel. Uh, their bottles are beautiful, right? They're all like Italian glass, mm. uh, really, really cool packaging, but the quality of the bourbons are excellent. Um, so they're, they're bringing the product in from Indiana, like an MGP product, uh, that comes in and that's where the, MGP the meaning. The, it's, it's a, it's a term for, uh, Indiana based, uh, corn and mash bill Got that it. they bring in. Got it. Um, that's becoming more popular in the bourbon space, but then they fit, they distill it and finish it in Las Vegas. Yeah. So it's like in vintners that buy grapes from a specific vineyard and then vineyard, eh, sorry, and then bring it into their facility and and make the wine with it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, whenever these, uh, designer this is corn. Worst. Exactly. Yeah. When, it, whenever they release new bottles, they tend to sell out very quickly, at least here in, in the Las Vegas market, they're doing extremely well. Huh? All right. Do they ship out of state? Yeah, I believe so. All yeah. Right. I, I think they have national distribution. Definitely would recommend picking some up. All right. It's on my list. Going to Bevmo. Here we go. Um, <laughs> you know, I was reading that that list has made me think. It's like, do you have any like good drinking stories with a client? <laughs> yeah, I you know I I don't know how, how tons of those right. Some you you want to talk about, some you <laughs> you may not want to talk about. Well, let's talk about the ones you don't want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I I do have a good drinking story that um, 
not not so not necessarily with a client, but definitely led to the creation and development of Janic as an organization. Oh, okay. Um, so before before starting Janic in 2005, I was working abroad um, with with my now counterpart here uh, at Janic, the other managing partner, Justin. Uh, we worked together at a previous company, and we were working abroad in the Philippines, uh, operating a call center there at that time. Um, and we started having discussions about sales and sales mm-hmm. training and sales mm-hmm. performance and what that could look like, you know, knowing that we were both very passionate about training and development, but also around sales performance. And we started having discussions about the possibility of, of a company, right, and, and, and doing that together. And we ended up making that decision to move forward over a, over a scotch at that time on the 35th floor of a hotel that we were you know, staying at at that time when we were, when we were living in the Philippines. In Manila? Um, in Manila, yeah. yeah. In, in, in Metro Manila, downtown. And I, I, in Makati area, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah. There, and yeah. I, I, I will always remember it was we were drink, drinking a, a Shivas Regal, <laughs> which, which uh, I don't, don't drink a whole lot now, but you know, that, that over that scotch created what is now you know, turned into Janik 15, 16 years later. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So, uh, right, let's get on to the subject of, of sales. Um, it's something man, it's something you'd written. I'd seen this as questions. Always good to ask people. So, yeah, are there certain innate skills that good sellers are born with, or can anybody be made to, into a good seller? Yeah, I, I think I think if there are there certainly are skills, or I'll call them more personality traits. Mm-hmm. Or, you know that you know, that are, that are a little more helpful, right? Let's say if you have, uh, from a sales perspective, right? Um, so I, I think some of those innate behaviors could be things like being a little more extroverted, perhaps being a little more outgoing, a little more engaging, having a natural um, and genuine desire to want to learn about others mm-hmm. right, and, help, and help others. Um, I, think, I think the personality trait of empathy, right? And having empathy towards others, that is certainly something that you can be born with, but definitely can be developed over time based on life experience or based on just, you know, uh, growing those, those, those traits. But I, I, th- I also think that sales comes down to a repeatable set of selling skills that if consistently performed can make you a top performing sales professional, you know, and I don't think you necessarily have to be born with all of those traits and certainly don't necessarily have to have those skills naturally. To me, sales is no different than any other thing you practice, right? Whether that's a sport, whether that is, you know, an, another job that you perform, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there's a set of repeatable skills that I, I know we've, you know, we've identified through our research and, and we've seen that work so um, what are those? You know, in terms of high performance. So, I mean, I, I think there, there's a variety. I think certainly uh, the skill around questioning, right, mm-hmm. and being able to understand the needs, objectives, desires of, of the person you're working with and partnering with and helping with. Um, is definitely a big part of successful sales. I think strong listening skills is critically important. Um, you know, if you're not a good listener and you're more, you know, you just, you miss opportunities to capture the information that you need to be able to service the customer and be able to, to solve their problems. Um, yeah, I think, I think the ability to, to develop ideas and insights for mm. a client, you know, be able to bring some of those to the table and get the customer to think a little differently, you know, depending on the sales environment and um, the level of sophistication within that organization, sometimes that's less important, right? If it's more transactional, sure, you know, but those are some of the skills that come to mind. And to me, all of those can be, can be learned, right? You don't have to be born with them. So the most effective way to learn them, though, and this seems to be, to your point earlier, about your business is good now, doing things virtually, but in your experience, is, is, you know, is it, what's decisive in developing, and I say a good seller, because I, I have to admit, I'm sort of tired of this whole idea about everything we do is, is oriented towards the mythical top performer, because give me a strong bench of good, good sellers, and I'll probably be more successful than one that relies on one or two really good people. So to develop somebody to be a good seller is, is what's what are really the key things? Because I I've, I did an informal survey about this <laughs> earlier this year, and it's like, was it coaching? Was it a mentor? Was it uh, your customers? Was it watching your peers? What was most decisive? And I was asking people that, yes, or fell into what you might think this top performer group was, and and pretty broad range of answers but for a lot of people it was 
it was uh, either the customer or coaching yeah. and training for a lot of people is at the bottom of the list. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it's a combination of all those things you said. But if I had to say if one that stood out to me, I definitely think it is coaching and ongoing development more broadly. <clears throat> you know, I I think training sometimes there's a misconception of training being this event, and that's that's it. Mm. Right? You, you bring, you're either bringing people together or you're doing it virtually, but it is a an event that you are going to. Any organization that thinks that training is going to be the answer and they just look at it as an event are going to get very limited results. I think training, the intent is to establish the skills in a consistent environment where we can practice those skills in a safe environment. We can work with our peers to start to apply those skills to real deals and real accounts. And that helps us start to conceptualize how those skills could work. But But the real work and development starts after training. Right. I, I think any organization that wants to implement sales training effectively has to have the right plan before, during, and after training to make sure that skills stick and behaviors change, and you know, and you're you're gaining institutional capability that an organization desires when they are implementing training. But if if you're going to develop skills over time, again, no different than anything else you're working on, you have to practice it. You have to, you know, be willing to fail mm-hmm. and be willing to get back on the horse, if you will, right, with the right support. And to me, I think that's the biggest challenge that organizations that we see organizations face is frontline managers, right, or sales leaders of frontline sellers tend to be some of the most underserved, right, in the sales organization. <laughs> they get promoted quickly because they typically, or typically, they get promoted quickly because they have strong sales performance and sales acumen. They do well in their role. And then they're off and running. They're not typically given the skills to be highly effective coaches, managers, leaders, et cetera. And that, exactly. that tends, you know, that tends to weigh down an organization's performance. So if it was anything to me, I think the, the, the linchpin to success in, in developing selling skills is definitely having somebody, having a coach, having a, a manager, a, a mentor, if you will, that is there to support you as you're implementing these skills and you're starting to make them consistent. And to your point, which I, I, take it a, sort of a step further, which is that, yeah, we have to service that person that's providing that coaching, that mentoring, because there's this huge assumption that's existed in companies for, <laughs> certainly I think as long as companies have existed, is that if you give someone a title, by definition, they have the skills and talents they need to be able to do that job. And yeah, there's nothing frontline managers know about performance improvement. It's not because they should know. It's just they haven't been trained, right? Those very specific Absolutely. set of things you have to do to improve someone's performance or coach somebody. And and but this sort of goes on up the line. I mean, we do the same thing with we assume somebody's a VP of sales that they know about mindset and psychology of performance and performance improvement and all these discrete skills they just don't have. So how how do we how do we get companies? And this is a big thing for me. Is you know companies just basically don't invest in sales in a meaningful way. Oftentimes, even large organizations, they start paying lip service to it. Yeah, we'll get this online service we're doing now, or in the past it was, yeah, bring high-priced talent in to speak at our sales kickoff, and then, to your point, sort of event-driven, and that was it for the year. We spent our budget. How how do we change that culture? Because we're seeing it in other performance-based professions, sports is one I refer to oftentimes, where they had become very data-driven, very analytical, very specialized in their knowledge they're applying to how do we help people get better at their job? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough nut to crack, right? I, I think obviously there needs to be discussion at the top of an organization um, to help the, the sales leader or whoever's in it, responsible for overseeing the sales organization see the value of making that type of investment. You know, I, I know for us, we measure the results we intently measure the results of all the training that we deploy. We do that through a third-party tool that's owned by Gartner. Um, so we have valid proof and return on investment data and things that we can share that help build the business case for that investment. Um, but you have to you have to be you have to have a partner there that's willing to listen to that conversation, right? And willing to t- at least take into consideration what that investment could turn into. What does the tool from Gartner measure? It, it, it actually is a, a scientifically validated tool that measures and isolates the effectiveness of a training deployment. 
um, at a, at a, on a session-by-session basis. So right? give us so an it, example. Yeah, so it basically uses self-assessed data and, and it brings in manager-reported data based on observation. And there's a series of questions that are asked of the seller um, or the manager, right, if they're receiving the training, um, that focuses on implementation of those skills in the real world. To what degree do they, you know, do they anticipate performance to, to improve? Uh, there's, again, just a series of questions. There's an algorithm that's built into it that um, uh, isolates bias and reduces those figures. Um, but basically, it's using the, the seller's data and their manager's data to, to, uh, to provide ROI figures. Does it draw on data from Salesforce or other CRM systems so it correlates it out to results? This particular tool doesn't. No, uh, we 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 do that with clients independently of this of this assessment process, mm-hmm. uh, where we're looking at that type of data and measuring that type of data based on the KPIs they're they're looking at closely. This is specifically around you know it's short of doing a full blown ROI study, which we all know is extremely costly and time consuming and that sort of thing. It's using the 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 result the anticipated results from the seller's perspective and the manager's perspective based on their observation. Yeah. What I see, this gets to a point with me that I'm, and this is not critical of what you're doing. Is it's just sort of observation is that, yeah, so much of what we rely on though in sales in terms of evaluating the effectiveness of what we do is based on self-reported or self-assessed data, and we're crying out for you know the equivalent of of a you know longitudinal study like they've analogous to what they do in the pharmaceutical industry and so on where they actually track through how it tracks to results yeah and that's such a huge gaping hole i'm just wondering why in your mind why do you think no one's ever filled that because i you know i i look at the self-assessed data and for me that's as soon as i see that self-assessed i i put a big discount on it yeah yeah, no, I, I hear you there. I think that the challenge is, and, and let me say that we we definitely look at that with some clients if that's a desire for sure, mm-hmm. and we're looking at that. Mm-hmm. The challenge is it's difficult to isolate. The, the reason why we, we like this assessment process is because it actually can isolate what the training is doing specifically. When, when you, it's, it's difficult to account let's just say it was a large sales training intervention with a, a you know fortune 500 company mm-hmm. the sale, sales training is not the only thing that affects the outcomes right. that's the challenge absolutely that. absolutely you know so when you're trying to assess that type of data right and you look at things like competitive landscape pricing changes uh, product changes i mean you know there's so many things that affect those outcomes it's really challenging to just say sales training created that specifically so yeah, that, that's I'm, why that's that's why that self-assessed data is, is is useful in that regard, and that's why we bring managers in to help validate that as well, because they can observe their sellers' activities and help validate is is, is the data accurate? Are they using these skills? To what degree are they using the skills? How much has performance improved? So it, it definitely adds to another layer that does mm-hmm. help the validity of the, of the feedback. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I was just sort of thinking is. There's lots of other sort of inherent biases that that also affect yeah, outcomes as well in terms of you know distribution of accounts, leads, yeah, right. sort of go down how the organizations manage that. That's what I'm saying is it seems like we just we need a a better, more objective way of trying to really capture this, and I I feel like it's huge a huge need that's out there. Somebody can fill that. So in your mind, when you're developing sellers, sort of what's What's sort of the single biggest issue that or challenge? And you know, is it skills? Is it mindset? Is it oftentimes I think it's perspective, which I guess you could almost sort of blend a little bit with mindset. Is that is like do sellers even really know what what they should be doing? Right? I mean, it's it's we train them up and say, go out and persuade somebody to buy your product. And it's like, well, is that really? The, the perspective on the mindset or is it you know we've talked about this again for a long time but is 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 your job really to help your buyer make a decision and i think these 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 differences even if they seem subtle at times in terms of just what's in the buyer the seller's mind excuse me is a huge difference when it gets in front of a seller or a buyer i'm sorry i keep mixing up my buyer and sellers but i mean just this change in perspective is 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 significant yeah, it is. It, and it, it is difficult to isolate the one thing, right? Because I think, you know, the culture of the organization has to support the right mindset, you know, based on whatever that sales environment is. 
again, some, sometimes sales can be more transactional. And for that reason, perhaps the focus on the customer isn't quite as important. I, th- I mean, to me, that should always be at, at the center of, of any you know, effective sales organization, but it just, you know, that focus is, it becomes less important, right? When, when it, it's a one call close, if you will. Um, so it, it is difficult to isolate, but I do think, you know, when you, when you're implementing sales training, right, you're trying to change behavior, you're trying to develop salespeople skills, right? Ultimately, that's the goal. I think, I think sales training fails typically for, it comes down, boils down to a couple of things. One is how strong is the communication plan and the change management strategy going into the training intervention? And I, th- I think if you if you have the right communication plan, if you can share with the sellers why this is valuable to them, what's in it for them, what their role is in successfully implementing this, um, and then you can also do that, you know, top down, right? Um, and sales leaders understand their role, et cetera. I think you tend to have a much higher uh, likelihood of success because everybody knows their role, they're excited, and they're bought in coming into the training. So that that helps lift um, mm-hmm. skill development because people come in with the right mindset around development. Um, you know, and then I think it has to just be the right fit. The, the IP or methodology has to be the right fit. The trainers that are training this have to be the right fit. So I think that's, that's critically important. And then I think the last thing is just enabling the sales leaders, which we talked about earlier. You know, if you're going to develop a seller's skills and, and, and seek to move them into the, you know, the middle, right, if you will, then not everybody, I completely agree with your sentiment earlier, like this idea of, of top performers, that top 10% or 20% don't necessarily drive the effectiveness of a sales organization overall. Right. It's typically the middle that you know, achieves revenue targets overall. So if we can at least get people into that productive zone, if you will, um, that's, that's a win, right? But I think in order to do that, managers have to be coaching. They have to know what their role is. They have to have the skills to coach and the bandwidth to coach, right, and the time. Um, and a lot of that just comes down to assessing um, the organization, right? Do we have the right people in the right roles? Are we setting them up for success? Do they have the time, right, to be able to do it? Like that, that sort of thing. If managers are coaching and you're implementing training that is strong, that's typically a formula for success. Well, it's interesting to talk about you know the time to coach, which is something that's you know is discussed all the time. Sorry for being redundant with that, but <laughs> but. But that's just a matter of priorities, right? As an organization has to say, yeah, number one priority is coaching. Second priority, third priority, whatever, is you know, producing the reports you need to produce or whatever the, the other things that may consume your time as a manager. And you have to make that, that priority sacrosanct, right? <laughs> if, we're, but if we're blocking in my, in my calendar for the week, then I'm going to spend two hours a day coaching with my team, one-on-ones or whatever. Yeah, nothing gets in the way of that. But it's you see it's such a slippery slope is is this is what you talked about is the most common refrain we hear about coaching is I don't have time. Yeah, no question. You know, it's an it's an interesting an interesting observation there. So the one thing that we know sales leaders are consistently focused on is from a from a frontline seller seller's perspective is how much time are they spending selling, right? I'm sure you guys hear that all the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Right. You know, like what can we do to get those administrative tasks out of the way so we can make sellers generate revenue as much as possible, right? And put them in the position to be able to do that effectively. You don't hear those conversations as much at the manager level, which is interesting to me. It's like, why are we not focused on the revenue generation that a manager is responsible for and, and tying the tasks and activities that they need to do to generate revenue and removing some of their, some of their administrative duties. Mm-hmm. It, a frontline manager's role now has become so much around reporting and data input and, you know, f- filling out specific, you know, PI, you know, PIPs and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. It's just, it, it, we have to try to remove some of those activities or at least automate some of those activities and really understand the value of doing that and putting them in the role to be able to generate revenue. They generate revenue through their salespeople, right? But it, those conversations, and I, I, I ha- I'm having those with sales leaders, they just, de- they tend to not focus on that as much. It's always on the seller. Well, I understand that. I mean, I, so I've had this conversation a number of times, and the same thing, this, this desire, this aspiration to create more selling time mm-hmm. for salespeople. I look at it from a different perspective, and this, this comes from hands-on experience and growing teams from this perspective, which was, true, we can, it'd be nice to be able to create more selling time out of the day as it exists, but when you look at the statistics about how much of their time sellers actually spend engaged in actual selling, 
that number hasn't really moved for decades. <laughs> Even in the face of all these technological advances we've had over the last 30, 40 years, yeah, generally sellers spend about a third of their time selling. And so rather than sort of trying to push that wet noodle up a hill, how about just focusing on making the sellers more productive in the time they actually do sell so that mm-hmm. they are generating more revenue per hour of selling time. And that's something you have control over today, as opposed to something that's a little bit harder to control, which is the number of selling hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like that perspective for sure. And then when you get more selling hours, they come at a higher productivity rate. I mean, I, I had this long conversation with a person who wanted to be on my show last a couple years ago, actually, and we were having this discussion because he wanted to talk about that he was actually passionate about the way to make sellers more quote-unquote productive is find a way to give them more hours and he thought he had this idea for that and <laughs> i just didn't agree <laughs> and i was like i just start from the premise that i'm never going to get more time and so rather than worry about not getting more time i want to get more out of the time that i know i have yeah yeah, that's an, a very interesting perspective. I, I completely agree, right? It's it's not always just about how much time. It's also how productive you are with the time you have, right? Um, so I, I think I draw a similar parallel even to the, the role of a manager, right? We, mm-hmm. we could talk about removing, you know, freeing up more hours and that sort of thing. But I, I agree. Part of that might come down to, okay, I know I have X number of hours per week right. for coaching. right. How could I make that time as effective as possible? How Absolutely. do I have the right skills to make that make that time as valuable as possible? Right. So, uh, completely agree with the sentiment. I think that's a great great observation. Um, and I, I want I just like I want to see sales leaders spend the same amount of time in that in considering that for for the sales managers, right, right and the leaders, if you will. I agree. Um, I, you know, I think that could that could definitely drive better performance. Absolutely agree. So here's here's an idea, and this is. A bit apocryphal, but nonetheless, as an example, just to illustrate, is uh, right now I think we spend roughly, the stats are $20 billion a year in the United States on sales training. And my estimate, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong, all right, but maybe 5% of that amount, maybe a billion of that is spent on training sales managers. Maybe 10% will give on the, a stretch, right? Yeah. Um, so, Back to this idea about the you know, what really influences performance improvement, and there's been multiple studies showing that effective coaching is the single most important lever you can pull to improve individual sales performance. Maybe up to I think a couple studies showing like 17 to 19 percent uh, uplift in performance. So what if we flipped that spend on its head? What if we spent of the 20 billion dollars? What if we spent 90 billion dollars training managers how to be better coaches? And spent $10 billion on training sellers. And if coaching is really that decisive, what do you think would happen with sales performance? I definitely think you'd see a lift. Sure. <laughs> yeah. like if, if, you know, no question. <laughs> if, you, if you flip that and, I, and you really enable the managers to be highly effective coaches and, and, and leaders and other skills that are sure. needed to be, right. you know, to, be, to be super effective in that role – there's no question that there would be a lift there. You know, I, I think, I think the only caveat to that is I think we need to make sure that we are still providing the right level of training for the sellers as well. Right. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. definitely a need to get Mm -hmm. those uh, institutional skills implemented. Um, But yes, if we had, even if I, I I like, again, I like your, your question there, even if it was an uptick of double, right. What we're doing today, if it was, if it truly was 10% and we can get that to 20%, that I think would have tremendous value. Yeah, far far more than I think it would be far more than the incremental equivalent, right? Of what spent we're spent on sales, sellers, individual yeah. sellers, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we have to sort of relook among many things. There's lots of conversations about how we fundamentally change the way we're structuring sales, the way we structure our employee-employer relationships, compensation, all this. And it seems like personal development is part of that, right? Is let's let's stop calling it training. Let's talk about you know, individual development, whatever we want to call it. it seems like that should be a better way. And for me, one idea that I keep coming back to and thinking about and talking to people about is instead of having this corporate delivered training, you know, there has been this explosion because of COVID, but even in advance of COVID, of 
people offering incredible online training resources, development resources such as yourself and a whole panoply of, of companies out there, is what if we tied development to compensation? Mm-hmm. And one of the ways we also encourage that then is instead of having a corporate training budget, we give that's spent by you know, sales enablement, is we give people stipends. You have an individual budget that you need to spend on training this year. And here are the list of programs we've vetted as enablement that you can go to. It could be Janik, it could be whomever else, right? Mm-hmm. But you need to take it. They've got courses. You need to do it, perform at a certain level. But you can pretty much choose based on you and your coach and your manager sitting down thinking these are the areas you need to improve on the most and so on. It seems like that's a better approach we should be sort of aiming at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, I, I, I think if you look at the root of that consideration, I think a lot of development has to come back to the individual taking ownership for their development. Exactly. So if you, if you empower them with a budget, and it's a required, you know, budget yes, to spend in to order spend. to, yeah, in order to achieve certain, uh, you know, uh, commission thresholds or compensation or whatever. You know that that budget's going to be spent. But if I if I can get my seller to take some ownership, yes, as a as a manager, I need to help them identify a development opportunities. But if I can get them to be thinking about that consistently, right, and then yes, giving them a budget to do that appropriately, then I think yes, that's a winning formula. We we had a a client that did that. that did that you know recently um they moved they shifted completely from a corporate ran sales training program and shifted it pretty much completely i think it was like 80 percent of their budget shifted into the hands of the sellers and sales leaders directly hmm. um yeah it was a, a, a large clothing manufacturer you know consumer goods company right um and you know they, and they've seen an uptick right in performance i think partly because you know it it you know, they're now getting training done faster. I think there's an efficiency consideration of that as well versus like the, you know, the slow moving, let's get this huge event set up sort of thing that, um, you know, can just be very challenging. People can just find the resources themselves, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's been helpful from an efficiency standpoint. But I think it, it goes back to that original point. You're empowering the the people, right, to do, on their own individual development, and that's been successful for them. Yeah, I just I think that empowering, as you talked about, the individual is. I think the knock-on effects from that are is that as they take ownership of it, they then begin to take ownership, perhaps in dimensions beyond just the sales training. Right? Is reading a sales book um, on their own time? Right? Is is being curious about their development as an individual and the things that could affect their performance, whether it's Hey, getting enough sleep, whether it's you know, getting enough exercise, these other things that that I think there, like I said, there'd be these connections that are made in the minds of the individuals. Say, yeah, I'm investing in my own development. What are other ways I can do that? Because I'm starting to see some results. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. That great, again, great perspective. I think that chain reaction is is hopefully evident, right? Like you see, you you are investing time into this development. So I, I see that as a great opportunity to do that in other areas of my life as well, right? So, you know, ho- hopefully, um, you know, people have that outcome for sure. I know I know, just in my own ex- personal experience, I've seen that as well, right? You start to, to want to improve in other areas, right? And, and taking, taking that ownership, you know, um, enables you to do that. Well, I think that, and sort of touching back on the theme I just talked about is, is I think this is going to be a a coming trend is this sort of holistic look at performance, right? I mean, if, so again, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge soccer fan and read quite a lot about how they coach and train players and at the top levels of the game, like in the English Premier League and so on. And, you know, they measure and track everything, sleep, diet, how they trained, right? The, the quality of the training they did. And it's all looked at and all monitored and all managed. And yet we think that from a sales perspective, and this is a performance sport, right? In the business world, this is the performance athletes. And we don't pay any attention to sleep, diet, exercise, fitness, the things that every day when someone wakes up have an impact on their ability to perform that day. Couldn't again. Couldn't. Couldn't. Could not agree more. You know, that's uh, sports is a science. 
um, performance is a science, you know, performance is a science, you know, um, I, I, we're seeing a little, you know, some trends in that with technology enables us to do those sort of things, right? Sleep tracking and, and, you know, intake and that sort of yeah, thing. I've yeah, my, I, I've got my whoop band on. So, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I got my, my Fitbit here as well, right? <laughs> so you, you're tracking that stuff more closely, right? But yes, I, I agree. It's, it's something that we should be looking at. Yeah, I just wonder how we institutionalize that, right? So how do we, how do we get management to take that part seriously where we're saying, look, we really do want to improve performance. And we now begin to understand it's not just what happens between eight and five that dictates our seller's ability to perform. It's what happens seven twenty four. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a tough challenge. You know, I mean, I think you, you got to the, the difficult. It's it's those difficult conversations that you need to have with leaders within these organizations, and they have you know the idea of thinking bigger, if you will, right, and not just focused on performance at the workplace. Um, and and you know may, maybe. Maybe the changes from COVID might impact that, you know, because we are all, a lot of us are home. We're not, there isn't this as much of a separation between home and, and the office right. as much, right? So may, maybe that'll start to enable sales leaders to think about it through that lens, right? Like we're, we're, we're now in an environment where we're almost working all the time right? because we're home and you're choosing to, you know, to, to work you know, and during, during certain hours or whatever. So yeah, maybe, maybe that change might, it might spur some of those conversations more. Yeah. I just find it again, because we draw these comparisons between sales and athletes and athletes have a pretty short career and, you know, elite athletes, professional athletes. And yet they also don't draw. So those, those hard lines between this is work and this is, this is, uh, you know, non-work life. Because they know that, yeah, what they eat, I mean, their diets are so strictly controlled, calorie intake, uh, but fitness, sleep, all these other things, they accept the fact that, yeah, they need to track those things because it has an impact on their ability to perform their job. And that seems to be the, <laughs> here at least, maybe just in the U.S., but for most sellers, they would view that as being hugely intrusive and upsetting of the work-life balance as opposed to, it's not really about balancing work. It's about how do we make you just better at this this thing that's producing your income. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at look at the top athletes. I know we're drawing the sports analogy, but it's very relevant. I mean, look look at LeBron James. Mm -hmm. Look at Tom Brady. Right. Look look at the, how can you perform at the level that they are performing at the age they're performing if you're not considering all of those things from a performance standpoint. If they just focused on getting better at the sport. Right, they're already really great at the sport. Not that they can't get better. Don't sure. get me wrong. Right, but if they, if that was the only thing they focused on, and they didn't focus on all of those other things—sleep, food, exercise, water intake—I mean, whatever the things that they're focusing on. Some of these athletes are spending a million dollars a year on their bodies. Yes, right, yes. or more, more. So if they weren't doing that, to your point, you'd never be able to have the elite level of performance for the time that they have if they didn't do those things. So I agree. How can we get organizations to think about that through that same lens and 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 how could we get the, the salespeople, the frontline leaders etc to also realize the importance of that also right because it certainly takes a concerted effort right even if a sales leader did you to your point you might still have those that are still feeling like that is intrusive that that's my time if you will um and to some degree it is but it, it, how do we get that mindset to change where it's not, well, that's my time versus I appreciate that I can continue to improve on my time so I can be better. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, and another thing you said in there that's really interesting too is, is you said it's what they have to do at their particular ages because they're both older athletes. I mean, Brady's mm -hmm. what, 42 now, 41, 42, and LeBron's 36, but has the miles on him of somebody who's traditionally 40 because he started playing mm -hmm. at 18 uh, in the professional level. And still playing at this incredibly elite level, it's like they do different things to get better. And they have different things they want to get better at, I guess is the more precise way of saying it, which is true for sellers too. And I think this is part of the other part of the perspective is, is what you need to get better at as a 40-year-old with, with nearly 20 years of experience in sales is dramatically different than what you need to get better at as a newbie coming into sales for the first time. And we, we tend not to differentiate that way either. Yeah, completely agree. <laughs>
All right. Well, Nick, uh, unfortunately, we're running short on time here, but uh, for people who want to learn more about what you guys do and connect with you, how can they do that? Yeah, so I, I think the best way to learn more about Janic as an organization is to visit our website. Uh, they, they can find it at Janic.com. That's J-A-N-E-K.com. Um, if they wanted to connect with me directly, um, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. <laughs> Just look for me there, uh, Nick Kane, K-A-N-E. Uh, we also do publish a lot of content and thought leadership on Janic.com and, and with, uh, with other sources as well, blogs. Uh, white papers, et cetera. So, you know, feel free to, to take advantage of, of some of that content we're putting out as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, good white paper I read recently there was how to engage the empowered B2B buyer. So recommend people download that and read that as well. So, well, Nick, thank you very much for taking the time. You as well, Andy. Thanks again for having me. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Nick Kane, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.